looking to start a podcast but don't know where to begin? Look no further. The team at Dodge Media Productions has 20 years of experience as podcast listeners and observing the industry and eight years experience in podcast production. We can help you take your podcast from idea to fruition and we'll make the process seamless and easy. We'll help you with everything from recording and editing to hitting the charts on Apple Podcasts. So what are you waiting for? Contact us today and let's get started. DodgeMediaProductions.com. You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 157. Today we are talking about The Princess Bride. We watched this on AMC+, Plus, which we did the free trial, and then Monday I canceled it. So, yep, I said it. Sorry, AMC+. Plus. <laughs> There's only one other movie on my to-watch list that, that was, was on, on AMC+. Plus. Yeah. So. This stars Rob Reiner, who we know from this is spinal tap that we just reviewed not too long ago there was a lot of circular i don't know i don't think it's meta but there were many instances of references back and forth between this movie and and this is spinal tap i I thought rob just directed this i didn't think he started oh did i say star maybe so okay i'll start over the director for this film is rob reiner who we know from this is spinal tap it stars Carrie Elways, Mandy Patinkin, Robin Wright, Chris Sarandon, Christopher Guest, Andre the Giant, Wallace Shawn, Fred Savage, Peter Falk, Carol Kane, and Billy Crystal as Miracle Max. The DP was Adrian Biddle, who did 1986's Aliens, 1988's Willow, 1991's Thelma and Louise, Judge Dredd, and The Mummy. It was filmed in and around England and Ireland. And the writer is William Goldman, who also wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. (laughs) I thought this was funny. So he writes The Princess Bride, which is just very, very funny. And maybe he adapted the book because I think there was a book because Carrie Elways talks about reading the book like 10 years earlier, but maybe William wrote the book too. I believe he did. But then... (laughs) He wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, like this really well-known Western. And then All the President's Men, a very serious political film. <laughs> like, I just thought, normally the guy who writes, like, The Princess Bride would have also written, like... Um, the Princess Bride 2. Well, no. what was the silly baseball movie with Charlie Sheen? Like, you know what I mean? Or, oh, Major League? Yeah. like Well I, done. I, I wouldn't say nice that... Pull. the princess bride guy wrote all the president's men i mean i laughed out loud while i was typing that up just a little outside (laughs) the synopsis for this film is a bedridden boy's grandfather reads him the story of a farm boy turned pirate who encounters numerous obstacles enemies and allies in his quest to be reunited with his true love buttercup yeah, it's such a very stereotypical, not stereotypical in a bad way, though, but very stereotypical. Well, it's a fun take on a classic kind of premise, right? Yeah, but what's the word? Fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've got one, two, three, four, five taglines for All you. All right, tag me up. The story of a man and a woman who live happily ever after, even though the courtship almost killed them. 
I like that one. Uh, yeah, it got better as it went. <laughs> yeah. Well, and my apologies, everybody. Taco has been keeping us up and I am tired and it's been a day. And so I'm not at my best, which I'm sorry. I want to say the reason we're talking about this movie is because Superfan Lee won this the month that and this was his pick. And this is one of the greatest films of all time. Right. We Mike couldn't believe that we hadn't talked about it because it is one of our favorites. So it's not like we're only doing this because of Lee. This is a fantastic movie. Yeah. All right. Uh, tagline number two. Scaling the cliffs of insanity, battling rodents of unusual size, facing torture in the pit of despair. True love has never been a snap. Uh. Yeah, I don't. I don't. The snap part. Like I, they had me until that. Yeah. Okay. It's as real as the feelings you feel. Uh, yeah, yeah, that one's that one's really bad. <laughs> All right, let's let's number four. Let's get yeah, yeah, let's have hope. <laughs> Heroes, giants, villains, wizards, true love—not just your basic, average, everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill ho-hum fairy tale. Okay, better than the previous one. I but... like it because it has that Simpsons quality of like the <laughs> many different, you know, not just three. Yeah, you gotta not keep your going. Basic, average, everyday, ordinary, run of the mill, ho hum. So, like, mm-hmm. there were six adjectives for mm-hmm. pedestrian. All right, last one. I don't, I don't have a lot of hope for this one. Heroes, giants, villains, wizards, true love. <laughs> wow. <laughs> For a movie this good, they had horrible right. taglines, yeah. but that yeah. just shows you William Goldman did not write the taglines like the marketing department did. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's see. Some trivia I have. Rob Reiner had been enamored with Goldman's book ever since he was given it as a gift from his father, Carl Reiner. And he realized that he really wanted to make the film adaptation after successfully demonstrating his filmmaking skills with the release of This is Spinal Tap. And several studios tried to make the book into a film, but without a whole lot of success. And Carrie Elways himself had read the book in his childhood and had always associated himself with the character of Wesley. When in history, I'm sure it's happened a couple times, but that an actor as a child reads a piece of, you know, work and then goes on to portray that character. That's, I mean, that's gotta be a one in a hundred. The closest I've heard is Nicolas Cage was enamored of some character from the Superman story. And I will not pronounce the name because all the nerds will send hate mail because I'll get it wrong. (laughs) But that was as close as I've heard. That's fun. Yeah. So in 2020, a bar themed after the film named As You Wish opened in Chicago and the menu features 16 themed cocktails. Would you ever go? If you found yourself in Chicago, would you try to go to the As You Wish bar? Oh, absolutely. That'd be fun. Yeah. I'm curious if they have a non-alcoholic cocktail. Right. Right. Then in 2014, Carrie Elway's Uh, wrote, As You Wish, Inconceivable Tales from the Making of the Princess Bride, a behind-the-scenes account of the film's production co-written by Joe Layden. And to help with his recall of what was going on, Norman, because he he talked to a bunch of the different um, people involved, and he said to Norman Lear, I don't know how I'm going to 
remember everything because I didn't keep a diary while we were filming. And so Norman sent him a bound copy of the call sheets. And he said, oh, wow, it's all he needed. Because when you read that call sheet, he said immediately I was back in that specific location for that day. And I remembered everything we did. And uh, Rob Reiner did the foreword for the book. And I am super excited because I went straight to the Libby, my Libby account. No, this is not a paid ad, although um, I love Libby. So um, I definitely uh, I mean, encourage you to check it out. We would accept it if they wanted to send us some money. but So basically Libby is audible. Um, and you can also get things for like your Kindle or you can check out uh, text like text-based books, or you can check out audio-based books with just your library card. So it's completely free. I love it. Are the other ones visual books to distinguish them from audio books? Well, That's I know. I was question. trying to think. Like, they have right. actual books, like, because I could read a book on my iPad, well, or... It's interesting. First, there was a port, but then when we had aircraft, they made an airport, and so do they now oh. say a seaport? I think they just say port, so maybe books are just books, and audio books are... Audio. I think so. Got it. Okay. Anyway, it is now on my list. I'm 15th in line. In and about 10 weeks, I'll be reading this book. I'm so excited to to uh, listen to... Actually, I'm listening to it because I wanted to hear... By the way, in doing my research for this podcast, I um, listened to a bunch of different interviews and Carrie always is a perfect mimic. And... I don't know, boss. Um, what do you call it when somebody talks like somebody else? An impersonator. Is that what you say? A mimic. It didn't sound right. Impersonations. Rich Little did impersonations. Okay. Anyway, he can I... speak like all of the people that are in this movie. Okay. Kick us off with your pickup line for The Princess Bride. Hi, honey. Totally doesn't support my theory. So, sorry, Mr. Goldman. No. Is it the Fred's mom? Yeah. What's the little boy's name? I don't know, but she's called the mother. Oh, and that's right. He's just the kid, I think. The, or the grandson. Yeah, the grandson. Or, yeah. yeah, he doesn't yeah. get a name. Yeah. I don't even think Peter Falk. I think Peter Falk, the mother, and Fred all get like... Right, because they're just they're, they're just framing an excuse to give exposition and get the story underway. I know, but... All right, so By let's... the way, okay, production thing. Uh, for aspiring screenwriters, actors prefer to play characters that have a name and not the grandson. So do them a favor and just give him a name, Billy. Right. Um, also, producers like reading names that are distinguishable. So you don't want Andrea and Angela and Amanda and Anna. It's very confusing. Yes. Good note, Mike. Hey, you're welcome. Okay. <laughs> so there's nothing particularly like spectacular about the cinematography. No shade to um, Adrian Biddle, but I mean, it looks great. It. I mean, they did their, they showed up and they did their job. Well, I will mention though, that Robin Wright does look gorgeous as Buttercup. And at one point early in the film, there is what my eye detected as the classic Hollywood gelled close-up of Buttercup. And I don't, I think we've talked about this before, but basically they would take a, 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 a filter, which was just glass and they would smear Vaseline around the edges and it would give for the uh, actresses, it would give this halo of kind of, you know, smear that was a very classic look for a close up of a beautiful actress. And so 
part of it could be since they were filming in Ireland and England, much like in Oregon, they have a natural diffused cloud cover Mm -hmm. that made the lighting. And most scenes were outside unless they were like, I know the scene with the rodents of unusual size. And I believe the scene with the quicksand and those were all on a soundstage. So they can definitely can control the lighting there. But otherwise, they just had nice natural light. Now, uh, probably a good time to mention the story I, I love w- that William Goldman tells. And he says, when people ask him, like, what makes a leading woman, right? And he gives the example of casting for this film. And he said, Robin Wright was flying back from someplace in Europe and during a layover met in a hotel room in London with apparently, if I recall the story correctly, Goldman and then presumably Rob Reiner, some other producers. And he says she had no sleep, was on a red eye, and she walked in the room and stole his breath. And he says that is a leading lady. As he said, they walk down the street and they stop traffic. Literally. Mm-hmm. He said in her presence, even with no makeup, no rest, no nothing, he was like, <gasps> and I, so I, I think... For people who don't work with actors, it's hard to understand the kind of charisma that some actors have. Yeah. And this was her first film or big film. Like she maybe did some shorts or had smaller parts, but she was on a soap opera that I used to watch. Called, it was on NBC. It was called Santa Barbara. And she played Kelly, the younger sister. That was set in Chicago? No. <laughs> I'm so tired. <laughs> I was like, no, Santa Barbara, I just said it. Yeah, dad joke for the win. <laughs> so, yeah, she w- it was her big break. Did Buttercup or Wesley change over the course of the movie? Well, the biggest thing where they both change is they're able to admit their love for each other. So it's hard to say that Wesley did because he kind of changed and then changed back, right? So when he was captured, he had to become the Dread Pirate Roberts in order to survive. Uh, But then he, after finding Buttercup, he gives that up. So, but she is able to then announce her true love for him. Like most fairy tales, she doesn't do a whole lot in terms of moving her own case forward. But I think it was good that Goldman and Reiner showed, like, for example, early on, She tries to swim to safety and then later she's going to kill herself rather than marry uh, the the Duke or whatever the name is. So she's not completely a prop, but I think for her, her, her main growth was probably in being able to acknowledge her feelings for Wesley. Yeah. I was going to say she has trouble expressing how much she cares for him because when she first falls in love with him as the farm boy, she doesn't. You know, I mean, I guess especially back then it probably would have been quite forward, but she just makes him like her errand boy or her, you know, oh, farm boy, would you get me that picture? (laughs) As you wish. Yeah. And so she, she just tries to put herself in proximity with him as much as she can until, I guess I was going to say until she can express herself, but she really doesn't until the end. So... Another interesting pairing that Goldman did was kind of the classic comedy duo. So Inigo Montoya and Physic, played by Mandy Patinkin and 
Andre the Giant are kind of like, uh, you know, C-3PO and R2-D2. Right. And other classic comedy duos. You could almost say that Inigo is the straight man and Fezzik was the comedy man, right? The funny man. Mm -hmm. So that was, I think, important to bring some levity to the film, especially in the first act when uh, Vizzini has captured Buttercup. I mean, kidnapping for ransom, that's kind of dark. We would tend to not be sympathetic to those characters. But watching Inigo and Fezzik kind of make fun of Vizzini, I think that uh, that that makes them sympathetic characters in that equation. And then later, Vizzini is such a blowhard when he dices for death with Wesley, even though we don't see him gruesomely die on screen, I don't think the viewer is upset, right? <laughs> they don't mind losing him. <laughs> I like how they tell the story through the use of the bedtime story and how we get to see the bedtime story kind of played out in front of our eyes and using the narrative style of going in and out of Peter Falk reading to his grandson. Right. One of the things that Reiner or the editor did, which I thought was hilarious is when Buttercup has jumped in the water with the eels, mm -hmm. they kind of do a bit of, I guess you would say maybe it's an L cut where they show her treading water and you hear grandpa now what page was I on kind of thing? Right. And so it blurs that line between the story and and the outer frame. Well, so that I was funny. In that scene, and I thought in one other one, there, at the moment where she's at her most peril and we think we're going to see her die, I think it pulls us out and now we're back in the bedroom. Right. Oh, Grandpa, don't let... Yeah. Right. Um, so, or like the kissing. Yeah. Is this oh. a kissing book? <laughs> And there's other comedy bits that are inserted in there that I think play off of the uh, just the setup. So the one that I love the most, even in the first viewing, is Iocane powder, completely odorless and tasteless. <laughs> and then later the Count Rugen or whatever picks it up and sniffs it, Iocane powder. Yeah. Such a subtle but funny joke. Yeah, you laughed out loud. Every damn time. Yeah. I mean, this is just such a classic movie. I think partly Lee, I'll speak directly to him. The reason we didn't pick this before in the first um, 150 episodes of the podcast is we were somewhat trying to pick indie films. And this just, I mean, I guess in a way this almost started as an indie film. Yeah. So maybe we should have picked it. But also we tended to not pick films that were just so... I'm just going to say it perfect. Mm -hmm. It I almost felt like, would we have anything to talk about? Because it's just so beloved and, right. and not that we want to be controversial or tear down people's work, but we wanted to have, you know, I guess I just, I thought that we would just wouldn't have anything to talk about. Right. I think because it was written as a book first, which I, oddly enough, I have not read. I'm not sure how much Goldman had to cut out or to change in order to fit it in the structure of a film. Mm -hmm. But there, I mean, there are just kind of, like I said, classic bits of humor that are based on the setup, right? Not necessarily the delivery. Now, it's hard for me, you know, to imagine anybody but Carrie Elwes doing Wesley. Right. And I think where you really see that the most to me, is uh, in the to the pain scene, right? Uh, that's just so 
much part of that character. I can't imagine anyone else would be able to have done that. But that could very much fall flat without, I think, a superb performance, right? Because it is a bit of a ludicrous thing. Like to say, well, we're not going to fight to the death. We're going to fight to the pain. Delivery of those lines. You mentioned that Miracle Max, played by Billy Crystal, had everybody on set cracking up as he does his kind of over-the-top thing. And Carol Kane is definitely chewing the scenery there. And I think that that works out well. And Mandy Patinkin, I had not known of him before this film. And I believe he was already successful on Broadway at that mm-hmm. point. He was. Uh, but this is what I knew him for after mm-hmm. this film. Right. Right. William was on set during the scene where they were walking through the forest and, and Buttercup's dress gets caught on fire. And <laughs> apparently hadn't been on very many sets because he was so caught up in the moment. He shouted, <laughs> her dress is on fire. <laughs> and he ruined uh, the take. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, see, this is why you don't let the writer on set. Right. <laughs> I thought that was hysterical. That is hilarious. That. Uh, there's, there's so many great behind the scenes and uh, videos on YouTube. And, you know, Mandy and Carrie trained for a very long time with the people who trained Mark Hamill and Alec Guinness and whoever was in the Darth Vader uh, costume. I know it was it. Yeah, I don't. I knew it wasn't James Earl Jones. Yeah, he was the voice. <laughs> but so you know, some very good swordsmen, and I, th- I believe one of them even went to the Olympics, and so they trained both in right-handed right. and left-handed, as Incredible. well as they said that there would be fewer injuries if they both learned each other's parts. So not only oh, did wow. they have to learn their own in both hands, but they had to learn the other person. And considering that that's a mere yeah, you know, yeah. it I, that would be extremely difficult. And they right. said that they were constantly training. They would, you know, Rob would yell cut. And while they're doing camera setups, they would come and get them and they would train. After the evening and everybody went back to their rooms and, and you know, tucked in for the night, they would train another two hours. I mean, it was just insane, the amount of... Right. But it it comes across, Right. This is probably the greatest modern era uh, sword fight, mm-hmm. right? People a lot of times point to some of Errol Flynn's work, like I think in Robin Hood, and I haven't seen that recently enough to comment, but this, one of the things I note uh, from the camera department is there are a lot of why, mm-hmm. right? Because the way we hide anytime an actor doesn't have a skill is we, you know, block it so you only see their hands or the shoulder. Mm-hmm. And then they cut to the close-up of Carrie always looking dramatic with sweat. And then we cut back, you know, kind of thing. This uh, For this fight, they show it completely from the wides in a lot of it. And in fact, there's even uh, a scene where Nego jumps on the <laughs> ridiculous, like, high beam or whatever. You can see that it's actually Mandy Patinkin swinging, not, not a stunt person. Well, I... Do know that when Wesley jumps on that one pole and he flips around, right? That wasn't Carrie. That wasn't there. Uh, yeah, which it makes sense. But, but all the fighting, the sword fighting, that was him. Yeah. To me, one of the notes I also had was from a prop perspective, who made their swords? Oh yeah. So I say this because there's a little show on History Channel called Forged in Fire, 
And one of the judges has worked in Hollywood making weapons for films, and I'm sure he's not the only one. I was just curious. I didn't actually do the research. So if one of our fans, like Superfan Lee, happens to know <laughs> or do the Googling, I'm very curious because I'd heard that I think it was, well, it was Mandy or Christopher Guest, one of those two actors, kept the sword. And so um, uh, that would be such a neat keepsake to have on the wall at your house. Speaking of keepsakes, the soundtrack was composed by Mark Knopfler. Did I say that right? Knopfler. No. I, I, I think in German, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, Nothing. but I don't know how Mark pronounces it. I say it really fast. The Dire Mark Straits Netflix. guy. Yeah, of Dire Straits. He, in his audio commentary on the film, Rob Reiner said that Knopfler could create the soundtrack to capture the film's quirky yet romantic nature. He was also an admirer of, or Reiner was an admirer of Knopfler's work, but he didn't know him before working with him on the film. He sent the script to him, hoping that he would agree to score the film, and Knopfler agreed on one condition, that somewhere in the film, Reiner would include the USS Coral Sea CV-43 baseball cap that Mark Marty DeBerge wore <laughs> in Spinal Tap. Oh, I guess, and it was modified to say the USS Oral COV-48. And Reiner was unable to produce the original cap, but did include a similar cap in the grandson's room. So <laughs> in the background, in one of the images with Peter Falk reading to Fred Savage, you can see the the cap in the background. And <laughs> later, Knopfler said that he was just joking. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, it reminds me of the story I'd heard about the flamethrower in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You got to be careful what you joke around film right. people. They just make stuff happen. They will make it happen. Right. All right. Uh, oh, go ahead. I just, I love that because I've seen this movie a bunch of times and I've never noticed the, the Marty, Marty DeBerge ball And cap. you love Marty DeBerge's character. I do. And I feel like I should Google to see, there's got to be somebody who sells the Marty DeBerge ball cap. Totally. Totally. That would be awesome. Yeah. So I had a couple of, of uh, notes I made about the sets. We talked previously about the swords. I did some research, and I'm not sure exactly what the name is of the type of pole arms that the guards at the castle are wielding. I think it's a voulge. So again, some nerd out there, medieval weaponry or D&D, can tell me whether that's true or not. But if you notice in the opening scenes when we first see the castle, there are a ton of extras dressed as guards, and they all have matching pole arms. So my question is, who made all that? And then where are they now? And the other bit of interesting not tie-in to Spinal Tap from the props department is the machine that captures pain. It goes all the way up to 50, not just to 11. <laughs> and I think that was right there. Yeah. Well, when you've got two of the the peop, you know, the stars from This is Spinal Tap, you figure that there's going to be some bleed in there. They said it was a very fun set, especially you here you figure Mandy Patinkin and Carrie, you know, did all that training and they never got hurt. But Mandy got hurt when he was watching the scene or was he even in the scene with um, Billy Crystal? He he bruised a rib from laughing, <laughs> trying to contain his laughter so hard. And Rob had to go like out of the room and watch on a monitor because he couldn't not laugh. <laughs> they said that they spent four days doing that scene and... Billy never repeated a joke once. Oh, wow. I know. Very impressive. <laughs> I 
<laughs> was there any head trauma in uh, okay. The Princess Bride? This is a contender for most head trauma. There is a lot There's of head a lot. trauma. Okay. So Wesley knocked an ego on the head with his pommel after the fight, so he doesn't have to kill him. Wesley chokes out Fezzik, Andre the Giant. So I'm going to go ahead and count that. Wesley fakes backhanding Buttercup, which is a little problematic. Buttercup pushes Wesley down the hillside. There must have been some head knocks there. And then she throws herself after him. Count Rugen hits Wesley in the head with his pommel. Fezzik then smacks a brute in the head and... Fezzik jars the albino's memory with a giant fist to his head. So there is lots and lots of head trauma in this one. And I will say, the thing about hitting someone with the pommel of your sword, sword pommels were there for several reasons. One was to counterbalance the blade, to move the pivot point back. But the other was for exactly that, the hammer fist with it. They would cause substantial damage. It certainly would have split the skin open and, and could have killed them. But in the movies, when you get hit in the head, you just fall down for a few minutes and you wake up, rub the back of your head and go about your merry business. Real life, that's a concussion at least. And you're probably in bed in the dark with no screen time for a couple of months. So kids, don't do that at home. <laughs> Leave your brother alone. And did we get a buttercup Leslie smoochie? Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. We got a bunch of smoochies. The two that I made note of was they smooch in front of the sunset and then they or I guess three, they celebrate surviving their falls by smooching at the bottom of the hill, and then they smooch after they escape. There may have been another one in there. I'm not sure. <laughs> and uh, a driving review? The closest thing we have to driving review, I guess, is there are little toy models of a Ferrari and a Jeep behind Fred Savage in his room. So we do see a couple of cars. That's about it. That's about it. All right, so we go to the numbers. Let's go to the numbers. So initially, this film did not do very well in the box office. Carrie pointed out that it came out the same weekend as Fatal Attraction, which apparently was the top contender that weekend. But it must have gotten quite a few views because in a 2012 interview with New York Magazine, Mandy Patinkin said that his most famous line from The Princess Bride, Hello, my name is Enigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die gets quoted back to him at least two or three times every day of his life. He told the interviewer that he loves hearing the line and he also loves the general fact that he got to be in the movie stating, I'm frankly thrilled about it. So that's pretty cool that he takes it with stride and doesn't get annoyed by it. At one point in time, I think he sold a t-shirt that looked like it had the name tag that says, hello, my name is, and then Inigo was written in. Yeah. Kind of a fun callback. Yeah, it's very fun. I remember that t-shirt. So, like I said... Oh, shoot. Oh, it had a $15 million budget. And so, domestically, it made $30.8 million. I don't have an adjusted figure, but... So, they doubled it, but we've often heard that marketing is about 50, you know, about as much as the initial budget. So, that would make them just basically barely break even. And then, worldwide, they really only got like a couple hundred thousand dollars more because worldwide I have that they domestically made 30.8 and then 31 is the worldwide figure. So when it came out, it wasn't as much of a huge box office success, but then a couple years later when VHS came out and now you could buy it, I think every, not only were people renting it and, and kind of maybe even rediscovering it, 
but those that watched it and liked it were buying it as gifts. They wanted to have their own copy. I know for a fact we either at least owned it at one time, if not still own it. I think it's one of those whenever I go through our DVDs or VHS to call, I it's like, oh no, you have to keep this one. So this definitely became a huge, huge hit and made more money as a rent or as a rental and a purchase. It got an eight out of 10 on IMDb. That's Critics, low. I know it is low. Critics though on Rotten Tomatoes give it a 98% and audiences oh. give it 94. I would expect those to be reversed. I would think audiences would give it 98 and critics would give it 94. Yeah. What sort of Scrooge doesn't like this movie? Right. Gotta have a talk with him. It is probably the perfect length at one hour, 38 minutes. Oh yeah. Including credits. Perfect. It is rated PG. So it's a wonderful family movie. There's something like this is literally one of those movies that you could watch with grandma in the room and you're not going to be embarrassed as well as you could have like probably what Little like ones. an eight year old. You maybe could even have a five or six year old. Depending. Yeah, they, they might get bored a little bit. Right. Um, but I mean, it is truly and it's labeled as an adventure comedy family. Yeah. Yeah. Good film. It was nominated for one Oscar. It won seven awards and got 10 nominations. Rob won for the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation, and it won the People's Choice Award, People's Choice Award at the Toronto Film Festival. So, Of course, as you mentioned, VHS and DVD sales certainly brought in, but it's become a cultural touchstone, right? Like you said that line, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my fat. Prepare to die. Right. The really, really well-known quote. There are a lot of fun quotes from this film. Inconceivable. Right. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, uh, it's a huge success because mm-hmm. it's become a part of, of the fabric def- of our society. Absolutely. All right. Let's see what we're going to watch next week. Clueless. Oh, get in. We're going to the mall. Yeah. Okay. You looking forward to it? I am. I haven't seen Clueless in a while. And with all this talk of Mean Girls, it just, I think I they run together in my mind. So I'm curious to see what parts are Clueless and what parts are Mean Girls. All right. So join us next week when we are going to talk about the movie Clueless. And never forget. Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 